play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. But today, for our last episode of the year, we're doing something a little bit different. Between this podcast, 20 years of radio reporting, and many years of food and culture writing, I have interviewed thousands of people, everyone from William Shatner to a cat psychic. But today... I get the day off because someone else is going to ask the questions and I am going to answer them. I was a guest on Desert Island Dishes, a British podcast hosted by Margie Nomura, a private chef who has cooked all around the world and close to home. Margie has cooked for the Queen of England. Desert Island Dishes is kind of like the European cousin of your last meal, but instead of one final meal, Margie works her way through her guests' lives and gets them talking about a handful of dishes that shape them. I think you're going to like it. One thing that I'm a little bit obsessed with is the way that Margie says podcast. The American accent is truly the worst. When we say podcast, it sounds totally normal until you hear Margie say it or any other British person. Podcast. It's so lovely. Podcast. 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 All right, I'm going cuckoo. Margie? Take it away. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. We have an exciting episode for you today with the brilliant Rachel Bell from the Your Last Meal podcast. We thought because of the similar premise of our shows that it would be a great chance to do a crossover as we think our audiences would both enjoy listening to the other's podcast. So if you're new to Desert Island Dishes, welcome. I do hope you stick around and listen to our quite large back catalogue of shows. And if you're a fan of Your Last Meal, I do hope you enjoy hearing Rachel being interviewed for once and talking about the seven dishes that have shaped her life. Without further ado, here are Rachel's Desert Island Dishes. My guest today is Rachel Bell. Rachel is an award-winning journalist with over 20 years of experience. She lives in Seattle and is the creator and host of Your Last Meal, a James Beard Award finalist for Best Podcast. Her food writing has been published in places like Lucky Peach, Eater and The Stranger, and she's appeared on The Cooking Channel as a taco expert. Seattle Weekly named Rachel Seattle's best FM radio personality, and Rachel says she loves traveling the world, hiking through wildflowers, campfire cooking, and trying as many dumplings and pizzas as possible. On her website, Rachel says her relatives invented both the bagel dog and the tube top 
which are both equally intriguing. Welcome, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I have to admit, I had to Google what a bagel dog was. Is it really true that your relatives invented it? As far as we know, I have to say for the tube top, that is on Wikipedia. So that seems to be validated because <laughs> I didn't believe my own family when they told me. Um, but yes, yeah, so the bagel dog, for those who don't know, it is just a hot dog that's wrapped in bagel dough. Uh, but my family had this company when I was a little kid called Dr. Stein's and uh, they're not around anymore, but they used to sell them in Costco. And my grandma, who's from New York, she would be in the Costco and she'd be giving out the samples and uh, their whole freezer was nothing but bagel dogs. They were, you know, wrapped in plastic and frozen. And my grandpa, people knew him around our town. My grandparents moved to the suburb I lived in in California when I was a kid. And he would trade bagel dogs for random stuff. So I remember him giving me like a little radio <laughs> in the shape of a Coke can. This is in the late 80s. And yeah, people would be like, your grandpa's Poppy Shelley, the bagel dog guy. Like it was like he was in the mob, <laughs> his whole trunk, he would open it and he was just had full of bagel dogs. So much cooler than being in the mob. I love that. So I'm so excited to speak to you today because I feel like we came up with the concepts for our podcast, Your Last Meal and Desert Island Dishes, at a relatively similar time. And the premise of both is similar in that essentially food is so integral to who we are. It's more than just food. And both our podcasts are nostalgic and often very personal and also can be vulnerable. And it's a way of interviewing someone in a different kind of way where they let you in on these personal moments. In that vein, I wanted to start by asking you, what does food mean to you personally? Oh, man, that is such a, a big, deep question. So many things, you know, as a kid, I grew up in a family that felt pretty food focused, you know, and I think over the years, you know, I've tried to think about this, like, why do I care about this so much? And I think a little bit of what you just said, there's so many stories. So on my podcast, uh, I interview celebrities about what they would choose to eat for their last meal. And then I bring on other guests to talk about the history or the culture or the science of that food. And as I've started over the years, I've had my show for seven years, learning about the history of everything from like a mint leaf to a specific dish, you know, maybe pizza, you learn that it's very complex. You learn about how seriously people can take food. You know, like we learned that these foods are so important to people that they're sensitive about other people cooking them sometimes or changing their dishes. Mm. So um, I think for me, it's a combination of just the most basic food tastes good and I love eating uh, to learning about the history of different foods. Uh, yeah, learning where things grow. I just think because everybody eats there's always something interesting to learn through food. Completely, completely agree. And Rachel, you've gone slightly more morbid, if only theoretically with your <laughs> podcast, where the guest time on earth might be coming to an end. And with Desert Island Dishes, we simply cast you off to a desert island after your last meal. How does the idea of going to a desert island make you feel? I think that I would actually really enjoy this because I'm a big camper and hiker and I like backpacking. And over the past couple of years, I have gotten interested in going by myself. It feels very different because you're not distracted by conversation. So I feel very in the moment. I feel like I'm aware of all of my senses more than I am when you're just talking the whole time with somebody. And so I've managed to get into the moment more than I'm able to in day-to-day -day life. Uh, so I think I wouldn't mind being cast off on the desert island by myself. I would just, you know, go hiking, 
do some open fire cooking. And eventually I would want company again, but I'd be good for a little while. Yeah, I think it sounds like you're going to be absolutely fine. So let's start by talking about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. The first thing that popped in my mind is fried smelt that my dad would make. And I think the reason that I liked it when I was a little kid was because he called them delicious, nutritious little fishes. And, you know, marketing (laughs) is everything. He sold this dish in the name alone. I have a feeling he was buying them frozen and then just frying them. We call them white bait here, where it's just like they're really tiny, like an inch long and they're just deep fried the whole thing. Yeah. Is that what you're, yeah. is that what it is? They might yeah. be two inches, these ones, but yeah, <laughs> same yeah. idea. Yeah. And we would just have them with lemon. I don't remember having them very often, but that is just a memory that I always think of. I kind of hope to never have it again because it might not be as good yeah. as I remember. It's so strange that, isn't it? When you think back over your childhood and, and dishes like that, that stick in your mind, that as you say, you might have only had them a couple of times, yet they're so formative and vivid. When you speak to people on your podcast, are they largely nostalgic when they look back on their life? Like, do the foods of their childhood play a big role in what they choose to talk about? Yeah, not always childhood, but always something associated with the memory. Not always, but I would say 90% of the time because I'm interviewing celebrities. So you might think, oh, they can have whatever they want. They have all the money in the world. Nobody has ever wanted caviar. You know, like a few people have wanted lobster, but there's always been a reason behind it. Like the astrophysicist, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he thought that that would prolong his death. He took the concept literally and he thought, well, if I have to crack this lobster (laughs) and pull all the meat out, then it will take them longer to get to me. But yeah, most people pick something (laughs) nostalgic, whether it's something from childhood or a lot of people will talk about vacations that they took with their partner. That's a big one. I think food and memory are very strongly Mm. linked. I think I was reading the other day, Nigella Lawson said that she'd much rather go back to the food of her childhood than her actual childhood itself, which I think I can relate to that. But I wonder what most people would say in response to that. I would not. (laughs) (laughs) My mom didn't work until I was 12. And so she was the cook when my dad went to work. But my mom wasn't a great cook and she didn't love to cook. My dad liked to cook, but he was at work and he just didn't do it except for on the weekend. So the food that we ate was fine. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't amazing. But my dad uh, is an immigrant. He was born in Romania. He grew up in Israel and he came to the States in his 20s. And he was very interested in food from all over the world. And so I was raised to eat all different kinds of cuisines. So I would say, you know, the best foods of my childhood were the foods that we had when we went out to eat. You know, we would go out to dim sum. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in California. And, you know, there's a huge Asian population. So even when I was five years old, I was eating chicken feet at dim sum. Some, you know, we would go out for Korean food and, you know, we would eat Middle Eastern food. So I can now eat out whatever I want. So I don't think I need to go back to my childhood food. I think I have it better now. <laughs> Let's talk about the second desert island dish. What was the first dish that you learned to cook? I don't remember cooking anything as a kid, but what I do remember is going off to college and, you know, even though I just said that, you know, my mom wasn't an, an amazing cook, we ate pretty healthy at home. And we weren't allowed to have a lot of processed foods and packaged foods. So regionally, the Midwest is known for casseroles and, you know, a lot of processed food, like using cream of whatever soup as a sauce, like cream of chicken, cream of celery. I wanted all of that. And my parents were like, 
no, like we don't eat that way. (laughs) So when I went to college, I was free. And when I had my first apartment, my sophomore year, I remember thinking I was a really good cook because I would buy pastaroni in a box, which is like a powdered kind of sauce. And I think you would just add milk or water and butter. And then I would add in broccoli and chicken. And I thought, top chef, like, look what I've done. I put things into this box food. It's so good. Yeah, but that is an amazing moment. Like whatever those ingredients are, when you put them together and you create something else, it's it's sort of a magical moment, isn't it? And that's such a pivotal point in your life when you first go away from your parents and you're in charge of what you're eating. Like it's, it's groundbreaking, isn't it? For better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's so interesting now to see, you know, with the Food Network and Instagram and food magazines and, and young people being so obsessed with food in a way that we weren't as kids. You know, no matter how much you could have liked food as a kid, it is not the Pastoroni era that I was in. No. <laughs> <laughs> If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. So I was going to ask you, like, we obviously know that you love to write about food and you are great at talking about food. How are you at cooking? I think that I'm a pretty good cook. I hope so, because I'm actually writing a cookbook right now. So yeah, I'm putting it to the test, which is a really, really fun process because it brings together two of my favorite things, cooking and giving my opinion. Um, (laughs) You get to write these notes. But yeah, um, you know, I think that there are definitely people who are better cooks than me, but I think that I'm pretty good. Yeah. So what's the theme of the cookbook going to be? So it's an all sesame book. So it's anything tahini, sesame seeds, sesame oil, black sesame, halva. So it's an interesting puzzle coming up with recipes and having to kind of run every idea through this filter of, can I tahinify this? Can I put sesame (laughs) seeds on this? Uh, It's a really kind of a fun experiment of the mind to kind of bend these recipes around these ingredients. Yeah. Well, luckily for you, we know tahini improves pretty much everything. So that's going to be a very delicious book. You've been a journalist in different forms for 20 years. Is that what you always wanted to be when you were growing up? No, I don't know how this happened. I, When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a children's book author and illustrator, but I did all of these little things that kind of pointed to me becoming a journalist, even though I never thought about it. So, you know, my mom has 
uh, cassette tapes of me pretending to be a DJ and, you know, then playing the music, even singing the songs. I did it all as a DJ when I was four years old. <laughs> and we have videotapes of me, you know, wearing my dad's suit and being a news anchor when I'm 10 years old. Um, so something was inside. And I did this class where we made a 30-minute TV show once a month for the public access channel. And the show would air at one in the morning on Saturday nights, prime time slot. And (laughs) we would make music videos and, you know, sketches and whatever the assignment was. And I loved it so much. I thought it was so fun that I decided I'm going to go into media. In the program that I did, there were some broadcast news classes, maybe just two of them. And we were doing a radio show and I won the part of the news anchor. So my advisor ended up giving me an internship at a local radio news station. And it just kind of happened by chance that way. So I started interning in this newsroom and I ended up getting hired there and working there for a few years. And I just instantly felt comfortable. I was like, oh my God, these people are weird. They have a dark sense of humor. You can be your complete self here. And I just didn't think that this could be what a job was. So every single newsroom that I've worked in, and I actually just stopped working in newsrooms in November after 20 years, has been the same thing. It's been this group of misfit people, scallywags and weirdos, and it's very fun. So that's why I stuck with it. And I've always kind of been a storyteller. And obviously, I like to talk. So it all just kind of came together. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And the story goes that it was during your work as a journalist that you stumbled across a list of last meals requested by inmates at a Texas prison. And it was a list of what every inmate chose for their meal. At that point, they could literally have anything they wanted. And it was really that list that was the catalyst for you starting the podcast. But I wanted to ask more about that. Can you tell us more about the actual list? I don't know what I was working on that I found this website, but yeah, some people would ask for 20 items and some people would ask for one thing. And it seemed like most people had fried chicken on the list and it was a lot of fried and more Southern foods because it was in Texas. And Mm. I just kept thinking about this list. I had never thought about last meals before. And I was always thinking of what my last meal would be. And I would ask other people what their last meal would be. And so I had this fantasy kind of big dream idea that it would be great to make this TV show where I could fly anywhere in the world. So start with interviewing a celebrity and then going anywhere in the world to find the best version of that dish or have their mom show you how they made that dish. So yeah, that's where it came from. And it's tricky because coming from that list, there's a lot of politics involved. For the record, I am not in favor of the death penalty. And I've read quite a few articles about how harmful it is to publicly announce in the news what someone's last meal is, which is what happens every time someone is executed because it's kind of... Oh, yeah, really? It's almost like a... Oh, I had no idea. It's like a modern day kind of tar and feathering, you know, in a way. And the, the argument is that you're kind of making light of this experience and you're bringing kind of a fun question to something that's very dark and um, very sad. And again, a big difference between America and Europe is that we still do this. Um, So yeah. And in Texas, it's very interesting. So at the time when that list was printed and and up to maybe, I'm not sure, let's say seven or eight years ago, um, inmates on death row could choose whatever they wanted and however many items they wanted. 
even though they wouldn't get exactly what they wanted. So I interviewed an inmate who for many years was cooking those last meals. And he said if they wanted lobster, he would start with frozen fish sticks and he would peel the batter off and then that would be the lobster. And, you know, they wouldn't bring in McDonald's or anything. Okay. But what happened was um, an inmate asked for a whole bunch of things. He didn't end up eating a single bite. It was kind of like his last... (gasps) sticking up his middle finger at at the government, like, I'm not going to uh, eat this. Okay. And they used him as an example and said, that's it. We're not doing this anymore. You don't get to pick a last meal. You just have to eat whatever's on the menu that day. So they took away kind of the only last bit of choice and freedom that these people had. Um, and that chef that I interviewed who used to cook those meals, who's out of prison now and has his own restaurant. He's been fighting for years to try to get this back for these people because he feels like it's really important to have. Mm. God, it's so interesting. I had no idea about any of that. I mean, I guess it just goes to show how different countries are and how we are all just constantly learning from each other, aren't we? And yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I don't want to bring your show down, but you know, it's kind of an awareness for people who don't know. Yeah, completely. So let's talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. I think I'm going to probably skirt your question a little bit because I think for me, it's really time and place. So many things could be the best thing I've ever ate in that moment. So the first thing that comes to mind is I love New York City and I love New York pizza. Oh my God, it's so good. So when I am there and I know that I'm going to be eating pizza on this trip, And I've flown five hours across the country, you know, taking the subway to get to a pizza place I want to eat at. Prince Street Pizza is one of my favorites. Oh, I wondered if you were going to say that. I love Prince Street, which isn't a traditional New York slice. It's like these um, square slices that are thicker and have what I call pepperoni hot tubs, which are like those curl Mm. and cup pepperonis that are really crispy around the edge and filled with delicious hot tub grease. You usually have to wait in line and just the anticipation and the excitement of being there and how good it is. Like in that moment, I have never eaten anything better. And in that moment, that is the best thing I've ever eaten. So I think time and place Mm. is really important for me. But I feel like in these moments, you are just so focused on everything that is happening and it just increases the experience. Yeah. Also from what you said, possibly it's also the anticipation. Like it's annoying to have to queue, but the fact that you have to queue and you've got this build up and, you know, that all adds to the occasion, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, I love In-N-Out Burger, which um, is from California, but it's only in some states. It's not in Washington state where I live. And I actually don't want one to open here because I like having to wait to go on a trip. And again, it's just so much more fun to only be able to have something once a year than, you know, have a cheeseburger whenever I want it. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes.
Okay, we're on to the fourth, possibly most important question of the day. What is your favorite sandwich? (gasps) I was so curious why you chose this question if you're a sandwich person. In the past, I would have said a grilled cheese because a grilled cheese is a perfect sandwich. But I learned Mm. about a sandwich several years ago because of one of the guests on my show, Iron and Wine. And when I interviewed him, he is from South Carolina, and his last meal was a stack of tomato sandwiches specifically white squishy bread, like sandwich bread with mayonnaise, a brand called Duke's, that's a Southern mayonnaise, and then slices of ripe heirloom tomato, most importantly from your garden, if you can swing it or from the farmer's market, but it has to be a perfect in-season tomato and then salt. And you can eat it open-faced or closed. And so now in my garden, I specifically grow a certain kind of tomato just for this sandwich. And Uh, the variety is called persimmon and they are orange tomatoes and they're a little bit sweet, but they're big heirloom tomatoes. And the climate in Seattle, you know, we live in kind of like England. It's pretty gray and cool most of the year. So the tomatoes are not ripe until usually the end of August. So I have to wait so long every year, but I mean, I really wait all year for the sandwich, which brings us back to everything I've kind of been saying before. Anticipation, scarcity. Uh, Have you had this sandwich before? I have. It's one of my all-time favorites. And like you, you can only have it with perfectly ripe tomatoes. And you're so right. They don't deserve to be so good, but they're just so much better than the sum of their parts. Like it's just something about that combination that is just pure magic. Yes. And when the tomato juice mingles with the mayonnaise Mm. and it makes almost its own little tomato aioli. Oh, I just, I can't wait. I have like a month (laughs) to wait for this. (laughs) (laughs) But it's It's coming. coming. It's coming. So as we know, food is so much more than food and people's answers to both of our questions provide a real window into the guest's life. You explore it beyond that. And the second half of every episode, you do a really in-depth exploration into one of their choices. You bring on another expert and you dive into the origins of the food. I think you've consulted with chefs and culinary anthropologists, and you just really uncover the history, science, and culture of the dishes, which is so interesting. Why was that a really important aspect of the show for you? Well, I like there to be a learning element besides just an entertainment element. I like to learn when I listen to shows and read things, but it's not always learning, learning, learning. You know, I actually, the nonlinear kind of rabbit holes are my favorite. So for example, when I had the fashion designer, Betsy Johnson on, my producer and I were brainstorming, you know, where do food and fashion come together? Because we don't always go off of the last meal. So we were we were trying to think of that intersection. And she suggested, why don't you have Lady Gaga on to talk about the meat dress that she wore to the VMAs? And I was like, we no, we can't get Lady Gaga. But I was able to get the fashion designer who designed the meat dress that she wore to the VMAs. And it was so fun. Like he is, um, I'm trying to remember now, he's from Argentina. He called his family's butcher in Argentina and said, what would be the best cut of beef to sew with? And ironically, (gasps) it is made out of skirt steak, 
which I was very uh, tickled by. Of course it yeah. is. Yeah, <laughs> so I like angles like that. Yeah, no, that sounds so interesting and kind of goes back to what we are saying before, like food is, is personal and it's emotional and full of stories. And it's so interesting to dive into that. I love that. We're going to talk about the fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? I don't know if this counts as eating because I drink it, but it is food. It's just been pulverized. I am not a huge (laughs) creature of habit, but I have drank the same smoothie Mm -hmm. almost every day for seven or eight years. I never get tired of it. I love it. And it is a banana, plain Greek yogurt, a lot of spinach, a big chunk of cucumber, frozen pineapple, peanut butter, and sometimes coconut milk, otherwise water. And it is green and it has like a tropical vibe with the pineapple and you can't taste the vegetables at all, but you get to feel very smug that you've already eaten Mm. the daily recommended number of vegetables before 9am. And I just think it's really good. And honestly, yeah, I like it, but it also makes me feel like, okay, now whatever else I eat today, at least I know that I ate a bunch of vegetables. Yeah, that sounds delicious. So you already mentioned that some of the most intellectual people that you've had on the show have chosen lobster. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's because it's labor intensive and they've wanted to delay their execution, which I thought was really interesting. But are there other dishes that come up time and time again? Because there definitely are on Desert Island dishes. So I wanted to see, are there things that it's just a general food that people seem to absolutely love and choose time and time again? Yes. The number one meal is steak. That has been the most Mm. common. And then ice cream. People often want ice cream. But I've just been surprised how few times people pick pizza. Like it's only come up a couple or a few times. And I think only once macaroni and cheese, which is a huge comfort food in the US. I'm just surprised Mm. by that. But to be honest, I mean, I hope no future guests are listening. I'm always disappointed when people choose steak. It just feels so basic. (laughs) And also it's hard to find an angle on because that's what I have to do on the show is after, you know, that interview, I have to figure out an angle. I'm like, what am I going to do with steak now? There's nothing left with steak. But um, we've already done the meat skirt, the meat dress. Yes. And like 42 (laughs) other times. But I think it's because in the States, that's kind of like this idea of fancy, you know, like kind of an old school, like, you know, 1950s idea of going to a steakhouse and you get this steak and mashed potatoes or some kind of potatoes and cream spinach. And it feels very retro to me. And I think, Mm. and actually I think I know because people say it's often like when they were a kid, if they were going to go out for a nice dinner with their family, which a lot of people didn't go out to dinner that much, that would be where they would go. And that would be the big occasion. Mm. I think because that wasn't how my family celebrated. We didn't eat steak to celebrate that. Maybe I don't relate, but I just, I think it's a little boring. Yeah. And you already mentioned it, but um, the In-N-Out Burger has got a lot of airtime on Desert desert Island Oh, really? Yeah, I've never had one. Um, But definitely a few people have chosen it as the best thing they've ever eaten. And then it's been chosen a few times as the last thing they'd want to eat before going to the Desert Island. The nice thing about going to In-N-Out is they allow you to order your burger however you want it without any eye rolls. It's kind of like the business is based on this. So it's, you don't have to feel embarrassed. And so I have a certain way that I like my burger, which is it's so gluttonous. That's why I can't have one up here. I get two 
beef patties, but I get three cheeses because I want it to be completely blanketed with cheese and I want it to drip onto the paper and then I want to scrape the cheese off the paper with my teeth. And even though I like at a backyard burger situation, you know, lettuce and onions and things like that, I get none of that, no sauce, plain. And then I add caramelized onions. So it's just this super umami, gooey, cheesy mess. It is so good. Oh, I'm drooling a little bit. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I, I've i never had one and I, I need to rectify this immediately. We're on to the sixth desert island dish. What's your go-to dinner party dish? I have two. Is two allowed or should I pick one? No, you can okay. have two. Um, one is poke. I used to think it was one of those Mm. dishes that I couldn't possibly make at home. It just seemed like, you know, fish is so expensive and getting sushi grade fish. It just seemed like something that you had to eat out. But there's a lot of um, places that sell high quality, but frozen already cubed um, tuna or salmon. And so it's so good. All that you do is put in a little soy sauce, a little sesame and that's it for the sauce. And you don't even marinate it. Like it would change the texture of the fish and a little chopped onion, a little chopped jalapeno over rice. And then you make that avocado fan. So you can put it on Instagram. You have to have the avocado fan yeah. and the seaweed salad <laughs> and edamame. It is so good, but it looks so pretty. And it is such a rainbow mm. that I make it for company because it looks impressive. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. If I turned up to someone's house and they'd made me that, I'd be so happy. That's like, as you say, it feels like such a treat. Yeah, it is a treat. It's so good. And then the other thing is a pasta that has this really good sauce where you use soaked cashews and then you blend it with a lot of basil and lime and like a jalapeno and just a couple other little things. And so it's this like very bright herby sauce. You mix that in the pasta and then you make a ground chicken like a very fast kind of ragu just with things like fish sauce and soy sauce and ginger and garlic. And then I put sauteed green beans in. So it's kind of like, I think of it as an Asian bolognese in a way. And Mm. I've started making that for dinner parties because people always really like it and eat seconds and thirds. And I'm like, oh, people like this. I'm going to make it. Um, And it is, (laughs) it's really good. That sounds amazing. And are you the kind of person that always serves dessert? I think that I do, but sometimes I just get ice cream if I don't have time. Yeah. The older I get, the stronger my sweet tooth gets. And I just, I need to have something <laughs> for dessert. Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever unhappy with ice cream, are they? On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? The one that I love the most is Eating Out Loud by Eden Grinchman. Um, she is the host of Top Chef Canada. And her, I don't know if both her parents or one of her parents is Israeli. So she's lived her life kind of bopping back and forth to Israel. And it's a modern take on Israeli and Middle Eastern food. And it's so, everything I've made is so good. Everything is just very fresh. Um, This dish that I've made a ton, because it's very simple, is you roast sweet potatoes and then you make a really quick, just lemony sour cream, just lemon and salt, the sour cream. And then you make... um, sunflower seed, fresh basil, lemon zest, garlic, salt, and olive oil. It's a little gremolata. And then you just plop both of those on this potato and it's so bright and zingy and fresh and just so good. Yum. 
I love stuff like that where it doesn't it doesn't have to be complicated. It's just simple things done deliciously. Yeah. I can't believe it, Rachel, but we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? Taking away the idea that I'm really going to a desert island, the first thing I thought of was seafood because I think of dishes that are so expensive that I never get them unless somebody else is paying like on a business account or something. And the first thing I thought of was a seafood tower. Oh my God. Is there anything better than one of those seafood towers where it's, you know, local raw oysters that have been shucked and crab legs and lobster tail. And I was thinking of smoked scallops and then seared scallops and huge jumbo prawns and having just lemons everywhere and melted butter falling from the sky. And that was the first, I'm, oh my God, how do people do these interviews and then not eat these things? (laughs) (laughs) I was also thinking of New England clam chowder, just like a little bowl of a very good version, but using that as a catalyst to get to having really, really good, crusty, chewy sourdough bread to dip it in and then really good butter with flaky salt on it. That would probably be good, but maybe I'll throw in a really perfect grilled cheese sandwich. We have a cheese maker here in Seattle called Beechers and they're in Pike Place Market, our famous market. And so you can like see them making the cheese through the window and they make the best grilled cheese. It's like exactly what it's supposed to be. You know, it's like buttery and crispy on the outside and it has that huge cheese pull and just so gooey. And it's very, very, very sharp cheddar that, you know, when it's just cold, it has like the crystals in it. That is... I think that's good for my desert island. Desert island Your dish. Desert island dish. <laughs> I think that sounds amazing. Are we going to send you off to the island with a pudding or are you going to, you're going to be happy with that? I think that I would either have, there is a grocery store in Seattle called Metropolitan Market and it's a fancy grocery store and they're famous for a chocolate chip cookie that they just call the cookie. And it is always warm when you buy it and it is huge and chewy and it has walnuts in it and it is melty and you need to have milk with it. I would either have that or my favorite desserts are kind of like children's desserts. I really love a banana split with hot fudge, whipped cream, nuts, and a cherry. That would be a great one. Yeah. It it wouldn't melt on the island. No, no, no. You're having your meal before we send you to the island. Oh, that's right. You're going to be In an igloo. (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was really fun to chat with you. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen, really. It really does boost the show in the charts and helps others to find it each week, which is great. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thank you so much to Margie Namora for having me on the show. I'm just glad that I had the opportunity to educate Britain on bagel dogs. Do you know what a bagel dog is? I used to assume that everybody knew, but I most people don't seem to know. Maybe it was a California thing. I have been making bagels over the past year, and I really need to just wrap some bagel dough around a hot dog. I'm also thinking about making a challah dog. 
Which makes me think of what my roller derby name would be if I wasn't too chicken to be a roller derby babe. I would be Hollaback Girl. Your Last Meal is a production of Cascade Public Media and created and hosted by me. Our original theme music is by Prom Queen. Make sure you're following along on Instagram. I'm Hella Rachel Bell. Sign up for my newsletter, rachelbell.substack.com. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Consider that your holiday gift to me. Or just tell a friend about the show. I hope you have a cozy, delicious holiday. And we'll be back on January 4th with a brand new episode. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Margie has cooked for the Queen of England. Margie has cooked for the Queen of England. Margie. (laughs) Margie has cooked for the Queen of England. Margie has cooked for the Queen of England. Margie has cooked for the Queen of England. The Queen of England. England.